Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Marcella. And we are both transracial and transnational adoptees, as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the system responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma, and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times, but we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the experiences of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Adoptee's Dish. This is Amy. And this is Marcella. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're glad that you're here. We're excited about diving into this next topic. Absolutely. And thank you in advance for putting up with my sick voice. I am getting over the flu. And as I'm sure many of you are, to the rest of you, I hope you all are staying healthy this season. It has been very difficult. I feel like everyone I know is sick with something. Seriously. I know it's crazy. The same thing, even though we are like hundreds of miles away from each other, it's like the same thing here. Everybody's getting sick with all sorts of crazy stuff. So taking lots of good care of yourself. Yes. And don't forget that mental health impacts our physical health as well. So totally right. Yeah. So intertwined. Yeah. So Marcella, why don't you tell everybody today what we're going to be diving into? Yeah. So as you guys may have noticed um, in our outro, we talk about how we have the potential to heal broken systems. And that was something that when Amy and I were developing the idea for this podcast and talking about our mission and what we want to really be putting out there into the world, that was kind of a tagline that really spoke to us. And we thought it was really meaningful on a lot of different levels. So today we're going to be diving into a little bit of our thought process behind that, uh, how you guys can be a part of that, whether you are adopted, know somebody adopted, uh, work with people that are adopted, or just like we talked about in other episodes, want to be an ally and want to be able to uh, show up and help to heal a system that on a lot of different levels is kind of broken. So we are going to be talking about healing the system today. Um, and before I kind of share some things, Amy, like when you think about just that really beautiful phrase of like healing the system, like what comes to mind for you? What do you think of? The first thing is that comes to mind is it feels very daunting Because when you talk about something like adoption, it is such a complicated and complex topic with so many different layers. Like you said, it's not just something that we look into our inner worlds and reconcile our own trauma, our own loss, our own grief. This goes all the way down from a very personal, intimate reconciliation of how this experience has left its footprints on our own hearts all the way up to a very macro systemic level of 
corruption and coercion and a lot of really difficult truths to swallow. So the very first thing is it almost overwhelms my system, my nervous system a little bit when I first think about it because I immediately am like overwhelmed at all the possibilities. One of the things that I've noticed as a clinician is there's so many different facets of talking about these things that inspire me. And I also, I often have to remind myself that I am just one person and it's not possible for me 100% of the time to give 100% of myself in all of these conversations. And so really reminding myself that I also deserve to do my own healing. I also deserve to hold space for my own rest and restoration um, for when I need, need that, but also to remind myself that you know, this isn't something that is just going to magically change in one day that we really need to our power in numbers when it comes to this conversation, because where I might be holding a little bit more strength, you might not be or vice versa. And this is where we really need to, you know, work on our allyship and supporting and amplifying each other's voices. Just because one person doesn't match their lived experience having one person in our community who's experienced something is enough for us to really attune to that and make sure that we're, yeah. we're bringing more healing to the entire system so that person can exist there authentically without feeling like they have to, you know, hide parts of them in order to exist among us in this adoptee community. Yeah, yeah, I think that that was really beautifully said and you know as you we were talking it was just that thought of even if one person in our adoptee community had a certain experience like that matters and that's valid and I think that there is such a misconception of oh well the majority have this experience and then this is the minority it's like this majority minority thing and it's just not. It's every single experience is so nuanced and so complex and so different. And I think that that is something that can be really alienating and really isolating and just cause people to really have to suffer in silence because their experience doesn't fit, you know, this this bill that everybody has going on. And so I think that just as you were speaking, it was no matter the experience, whether your experience was truly wonderful and excellent, whether it was not or anywhere in between, um, that's valid and it matters and it's, you know, worth, uh, it's worth elevating those voices. hundred percent. Is there something that when you think about healing the system, when you hear that, do you immediately go to the inner world or do you think more macro immediately? It's That's a really interesting question. I think that previously in my life, it would have gone to like the system as in thinking of it as this big, huge external thing. Uh, now that I've done a lot of healing work of my own and have leaned into that instead of being like so avoided and fearful and like pushing it away, I think it's more like 50-50. I think for me, thinking about healing the system, I think of it as like three tiers. I think of it as like, we have to heal our own systems individually from the things that uh, we go through or from the trauma that we've experienced. We have to, nobody else can do that for us. Like we have to 
figure out a way to make that happen in whatever way suits us. So I think of it in that way of really individualistic. But then I also think of it as, um, and this goes into some of my like IFS training, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a modality called internal family systems. I think of like the family system. So like the family that I was adopted into, the biological family that I was taken away from, like those systems and how those systems also had to endure a lot of struggle, a lot of trauma, a lot of hardship, a lot of messiness. And there's a lot of dysfunction there that has to be repaired. And then the third tier is like you were alluding to this like big, messy, systemic like industry that's been created that is adoption that needs a lot of reform. That's like kind of a hot mess express if you really look into it and really needs to kind of be totally like it needs a total upheaval really um but I think of it on those kind of three different tiers when I think of healing the system and I I agree it does feel really daunting personally professionally systemically it does feel really daunting um but I think that it still needs to be done even though it's daunting when I think about being a mom and I think about my kids, because I think this is like a simple example that others could relate to, um, is that when they're in pain, my immediate gut reaction is like, what can I do to wash that pain away? Well, I just want to take that pain away from my kids. I don't want them to be uncomfortable. It's just a natural instinct that I think we have as humans is we don't like being uncomfortable. And so we don't want the people that we love to be uncomfortable either. What I've learned, though, as I've done more of my own healing and as I've done more and more years of this work is it's not about taking the pain away. It's about learning to expand our capacity to be able to sit with the pain. And that's a huge difference. It's not washing it away because what happens when we wash it away, we, we it's a lot of erasure about and silencing and it can be a very isolating experience. If we're using language like, oh, don't worry, it's OK, it's all gone now. That's us projecting our own fears and insecurities onto something else. But when we say things like, wow, this feels, I can see how uncomfortable this is, and I'm going to sit with you as long as I need to, that's a very different message that we're sending to somebody. So what I've learned is regardless of where we're talking about the system, whether it's from a macro all the way down to our own internal stuff, what I've learned is it's not about sugarcoating, watering down, rejecting the truth that there's really some ickiness and heaviness and weight to some of these these topics and all of that it's how do we expand our capacity to be able to sit alongside others in their suffering to not only like literally hold space for them so to acknowledge them and help them feel seen and heard but also to build attachment community connection all these other really important things allyship that help us not feel so alone in our suffering just as human beings. Yeah, no, I think that that makes so much sense. And I think you, like, I, I, it reminds me of things that I say to my clients of our goal isn't to just fix this because a lot of it, it's like not fixable. Like this stuff can't be fixed. It's, it's already happened. It's already out there. Our, our goal is to, whether it's internally, within a family, within society, make space for this stuff that is going to kind of push the status quo and is not going to 
be what everybody typically thinks of when they think of adoption, which is like the warm fuzzies and like the cutesy little stories that you see on the, you know, on the media and things like that. It's no, the goal here is to make space through connection, through safety, in order to have people's legitimate, uh, really raw experiences out there and not have that be, you know, brushed aside or dismissed or erased or invalidated because that just makes the system even more broken if things just can't be acknowledged. Yeah. One of the really brave and courageous ways I think to begin is like you were saying earlier, being able to look inside our own selves and be so honest about what our own personal triggers are, our own fears, our own insecurities, our own um, joys, even things that things that make us innately human. How are they unique to each of us? A lot of times vulnerability, what I've learned and what I've witnessed and what I've even experienced just as being a human being is such a hard thing to tap into because it can really feel may let, leave us feeling exposed and isolated and on the island all by ourselves. But I really believe that vulnerability is the most beautiful superpower. And when people tap into that, nothing but courage comes from that bravery. And when we're vulnerable, we help other people see our humanness and we are able to connect with other people in a very more authentic and raw way. It, sound, it might sound like kind of foo-foo-y and out there, but I really think it comes down to, are we able to stay regulated, which is essentially, are we able to stay connected to ourselves and to others when all the stuff is swirling around us in chaos? How, what is our capacity to be able to stay regulated to our, or connected to ourselves and to others? Because that's going to be the true push and pull of are we going to be able to handle whatever's coming our way or is it going to completely dysregulate us and pull us and deground us from wherever we're standing in? Totally. Yeah. No. And I think that 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 actually segues into something I know we were going to talk a little bit about just, you know, those different levels of the system. And it was reminding me on the personal level of healing my own internal system is like when I first went into therapy. And I could not do what you were just describing. I could not, I had zero capacity to go inside and just sit with all of the messiness that was in there because I'd gone through, I don't even know how many years at that point, but of, of just going through and using all different kinds of protective parts of me, using all different kinds of defense mechanisms, going through all of these different like motions to avoid going inside and dealing with this like huge void and this pain and like all of this stuff that was there because I think really a lot of parts of my system were like she can't handle that like that's gonna totally break her that's gonna that's gonna like she will not be able to sustain um going through that and facing all of those things and so throughout my therapy experience and doing all different, you know, different modalities, different kinds of stuff. That is something that I can say has truly been so healing for my internal system is I can now be regulated. I don't know how I survived in the way that I was 
operating. I was like all over the place inside. It was like this constant anxious ball of energy. And now I feel so much more empowered when I notice those things to be able to cue in and do something for myself. Like I don't have to just sit and stay in that like ball of dysregulation. And that was a huge part of healing my internal system. I don't know if you've had a similar experience or like what you think of when you think of like your own internal system healing. Totally. When I think about, I didn't know it at the time, but I really believe that I became a therapist and I'm a social worker because I was in such a deep pursuit. I think my strategy was I'm going to find that one magical phrase or magical intervention to feel calmer to feel better. And I was approaching it all from such an intellectual standpoint, like, I'm going to read all these books, I'm gonna learn about attachment, I'm gonna learn about co regulation and adoption and blah, 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 blah. Eventually, once I read enough, I'm going to totally be cured or better or calmer. And what I was noticing over time is like, I'm not feeling cured or better or calmer. (laughs) What's going on here? And it's because I was keeping everything in my head and I wasn't letting the stuff seep into my soul, into my body, into like, I wasn't letting it integrate, you know, which is like just a really fancy way of saying, you know, a clinical way of saying, letting stuff simmer and settle into your body, into your system. I was keeping it all in my head. And what I've learned now just through experience and, and my own healing is that that's what might have gotten me here, but relational trauma is healed through relationships. And in order for us to have relationships, the first relationship that we have to have is with ourselves. And it has to be an honest one, and it has to be one that allows forgiveness and wiggle room to try different things on, to feel what suits us or what what interventions actually do bring us calm or joy. We as human beings will start running all sorts of adaptive and creative strategies out of self-preservation. And the tricky part is learning, noticing, okay, I'm running all these strategies right now. What can I do to kind of shift and stay away from those and be more present with myself now through a ridiculous amount of energy and therapy and support and the work that I do? I mean, honestly, I can 100% admit that just being a therapist, my clients teach me so much and their bravery and their capacity is such a beautiful gift that I get to interact with every single day. My clients are my number one teachers. Um, and they model for me bravery and courage in a way that literally shakes me to my core. I love my people. Um, yes, right. Shout out to all of our clients. Shout out to my clients. You guys are the bravest people on this planet. I love and adore every single one of you. Um, but that's what kind of comes up for me initially is that this, you know, sometimes parents even will talk to me about what intervention, blah, blah, like, you know, medication, strategies, and pull out these words. And I'll come back and I'll say, you know what we did today in session? We just practiced being in connection with one another. We just sat there and we just practiced noticing what felt like in our bodies to be sitting next to each other or what it felt like to not have to be in a room where there's expectations or pressure What does it feel like to just sit with yourself? What does it feel like to sit with yourself next to somebody else? 
Some people can't even tolerate that. And so getting people to expand their capacity to even be present with themselves, it sounds kind of funky, sounds kind of silly, but when we really slow things down, do we have a tolerance to access calm? Do we have a tolerance to even sit with ourselves? That's a very real question. And I'm always curious about that in session. Um, And it's a very telling spot of where we can begin on learning self-regulation But again, it's also nuanced because then it kind of goes to the next layer of how do we learn about being in connection with others? Well, we usually learn about that experience through our caregivers and through our family units and our familial culture. And if that wasn't something that we had access to growing up, of course, it's going to be harder for us to stay in connection with ourselves. Yeah, no, I think that you hit the nail totally on the head there. And for anybody that is adopted that's listening or for people that are tuning in that maybe aren't adopted, but have some other level of complex trauma. I just want to validate that it makes total sense that we aren't able to just readily freely, like go inside ourselves and face all of that because of the things that we have experienced, like our nervous systems went into the mode exactly the way they were supposed to of keeping us safe and making sure that we were okay and helping us get through all of the really, really hard stuff. And what I tell a lot of my clients is that that worked, right? That worked the way that you were doing it for however long you were doing it. It's gotten you this far and we're not trying to discredit that or Uh, criticize that in any way, because it got you here, right? But I think, and this, you know, ties in with what Amy was saying, a lot of times, especially, you know, once we get into adulthood, once we kind of notice, oh, maybe we're repeating some of these patterns, we're like, oh, maybe this system needs an update. And that's the word that I use a lot is that our system needs an update. Yeah, maybe that old system was working, and it got us to this point, and maybe, it's helped us become really successful and have a relationship and, you know, all of those kinds of things, but maybe it's just not working the best for us anymore. And that's when a lot of like, I'll see my clients come in and they'll be like, this just isn't working for me anymore. Like I keep hitting this wall. I keep, you know, getting into this pattern. And that's when so much of this healing that we talk about can make a real shift in that, right? We are not doomed to have to stay in those patterns if we don't choose to. If we want to update that system, we have every right to because we shouldn't be defined by our trauma, but we do have to acknowledge that it plays a role in how our system adapts, how it builds, how it operates, and that that is subject to change. So for Anybody listening that is just like, oh my gosh, like that feels so daunting. I know for myself, like this has taken a long time. Like I didn't go to like two or three therapy sessions and could like magically go inside and like face all of this stuff. Like kudos to my therapist, been seeing her for, I don't even know how many years at this point. So this is something that is an ongoing lifelong journey of having to heal our systems. Yeah. And one of the things I tell my people in session is that, when I notice that they're experiencing a level of shame around how long, or I can't believe I let myself do this for so long, or I've been pushing people away for so long, the reframe I try to offer, and they can pick it up if they want, they don't have to, but a reframe I try to offer is, you know what, today, 
all I want you to do is try to challenge yourself to honor the parts of you that just helped you survive. Because you're here and you're in my office and you're here in this conversation. So what that tells me is that they haven't defeated you. And so let's try to reframe that as the parts of you that helped you survive. Because what I see is a person who's done the absolute very best that they can with what they've had access to. And if you don't know what you don't know, then how can you implement other strategies? Otherwise, this is our chance to be detectives together to figure out and do a little investigation of what is going to work for you, what is going to feel safer for you, what is going to help you feel more connected to not only yourself, but others. And that's the beginning. And so that's just a challenge I put out to everybody is today, try honoring the parts of you that helped you survive, because those are the warrior parts of you. Those are the parts of you that are just so unbelievably vulnerable. And those are parts of you that even if they feel scary, even if they feel daunting or really overwhelming, there's a lot of messages in there for you to notice about what your triggers are and what does or does not feel safe for your system. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's about having so much compassion for those parts. Right. And I know at least for me personally, when I was first unpacking all of the different parts that were in my system, there were some parts where I was like, I don't really like you. Like you're kind of annoying and you're getting in my way. And, you know, I didn't have very kind things to say about some of those parts. And then what am I doing to myself? Then I'm literally just internally rejecting parts of myself, which I try so, so hard externally to avoid rejection, but I'm like doing it to myself, right? So it was like kind of hypocritical of, I have to be able to meet those parts of me that, like you said, did help me to survive, that were doing the best they can with what was presented to them and also acknowledge like those parts of me. I think especially when I was first going into therapy, those parts of me were tapped out and exhausted. Like they were so tired. They were like running on fumes, but we're like gonna, they were great little soldiers and we're gonna like keep plowing through, but they, they needed a break. And I, I think part of my healing was being able to, have those parts know when maybe it's appropriate for them to come out, but then the other times they can rest, like they can rest. That was something that my system never knew was how to internally rest. Mm. And that was such a game changer. Mm. When I think about the parents I work with, um, when I think about adoptive parents, This is why what we're talking about internal personal healing is so important because Mm -hmm. the story of adoption comes with a thick layer of trauma, grief, and loss and rejection, abandonment, and feelings and parts that feel um, unworthy, unlovable, things like that. And so if you as a person have parts of you that are running strategies to counter feelings for yourself of I'm unlovable or I'm just going to be rejected, it's going to be very hard to stay regulated and connected to your child when they're triggered in those abandonment wounds and those attachment wounds because it's going to be triggering your own stuff. What can happen then is that whether intentional or not, as adoptive parents or parents in general, 
can start putting their own expectations, their own stuff, that pressure for their child to soothe that. And that should never be a child's responsibility. What happens right. when we don't address our own internal stuff is we start parenting from a place that feels safe to us as parents and not a, from a place that creates safety for children. And there's a difference there. Children absolutely 100% of the time deserve and need to know that them existing 100% in their authenticity um, is accepted, loved, adored, cherished, valued. Nur valued, nourished. And if parents can only accept parts of them that feel comfortable to them because of their own stuff that they haven't worked through, or if they're only committed to work parenting from a place that feels safe to them, they're going to be missing such key opportunities to create safety and open pathways of connection with their kids. So this is when it starts layering up to get to a macro level, because if we're not dealing with our own stuff, what are we projecting and putting onto other people? And if we're not able to do that, then we're just creating intergenerational trauma that's going to get more and more complicated and deeper, and the wounds are going to be harder to connect. And it's just, it's so, it can't be, I can't say it enough how important it is for us to be brave enough and courageous enough to look inside our own worlds because our own worlds and that healing literally is changing generations. We, I think it's so empowering to think about the fact that we get to be generational um, trauma changers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's comforting. I think for me, it's a source of comfort knowing that despite this stuff, there can still be healing. And, you know, just in terms of, I, I want to just put a little, uh, footnote in here, you hear Amy and I in our therapist lingo talking about parts a lot. And I just want to do a really quick kind of definition for what that means. Cause some people might be like, what the heck you're telling me? Like I have parts. What does that mean? So when we talk about parts, the way that I explain this to clients, and we'll probably do a much deeper dive into all of this is we all have parts, right? We all do. There's that part of me that is a friend. There's a part of me that's a daughter. There's a part of me that's, uh, you know, a therapist. There's a part of me that's an adoptee. There's that part of me that can be super motivated and go work out. And there's that part of me that wants to stay in bed in my sweatpants and like binge watch Netflix, right? So like we all have different parts of us. When we're talking about this with kids, sometimes we refer to it like by our emotions. There's that angry part of me. There's that really like little tiny, like vulnerable part. There's uh, an anxious or worried part. So you can just in knowing yourself, kind of put together a little bit of what your internal system would look like, what those parts do for you day to day, how they help you, how maybe they hinder you in some situations, what their role is, how long they've been around. And so this is something that when Amy and I talk about, you know, knowing your parts and being able to heal all of that, it's because sometimes when we go through hard experiences, that system of parts gets a little wonky, right? There's certain parts that are getting way more action than others. There's certain parts that are maybe holding certain really, really difficult trauma material and things like that. There's other parts that maybe, you know, like for me, for example, right? My angry part was a big part that we had to address in therapy, right? Because I had a great angry part that was one of my fiercest protectors, 
would, you know, know exactly how to get a job done, but it was kind of screwing me over in some of my relationships and being able to connect mm-hmm. with people and all of that other kind of stuff. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. And we all have them. So I really think it's important that we normalize this. We all have it. It's all individualized because we all go through different individualized experiences. But to Amy's point, I am a proponent that anybody, I mean, really any parent should be doing their own therapy, but especially parents that are going to be adopting when you are going to be bringing a child into your life that I define as like, this is like special needs parenting, right? Not the special needs parenting that we're used to thinking about, like with somebody with like a physical handicap or something, but this is special needs parenting. And if you haven't worked on your own stuff, what happens, and I can speak to this personally and professionally, is people in this family end up being pushed into certain roles, Right. So you end up getting like, oh, dad's the emotionally distant one and mom's the nagger. And so and so is the rebel of the family. And so and so is the scapegoat. Right. Everybody gets into a role. And a lot of times that those roles can be really dysfunctional and can cause a lot of a lot of anguish, a lot of just stress, a lot of toxicity within a family unit. And that is something that I see all the time. I saw it within my own family. I see it within a lot of the families that I work with. And it's so, so important that parents are not just putting the onus on kids to heal their stuff. It's like the parents have to also do their own work. Yeah, so beautifully said. I think parts work in general is really hard because it's so nuanced within itself. When we think about the strategies, excuse me, that we run, they're dictated by which parts are most activated at that time. So if I'm running strategies of pushing people away, perhaps a part of me that is feeling more protective is kind of at the forefront and center. But what can feel really tricky, especially for people with complex trauma, is multiple parts can be activated at the same time. And so in our internal worlds might feel very confusing because we have one part that might be in protective mode and we might have another part that's really resistant and we have might have another part that's overanalyzing everything. And that sounds really exhausting and it can be really exhausting. And that's why it can be so hard to kind of even understand what's going on. It's not as black and white of, oh, that's just like, am I happy or sad today? Am I feeling strong or weak? It's really kind of getting in that heavy, messy stuff and being brave enough to confront it and acknowledge what it is and and microdose begin to tolerate what that looks like. So if you can imagine that just being your internal world, if multiple people in the family are dealing with the complexities of their own distress or their own trauma or their own parts work, well, that sounds even more exhausting. And so when we put it in a system or a framework like adoption, where now we have a macro system that has come and intervened and there's such a deep, profound level of grief and loss, and now you're coupling it with everybody's unhealed stuff around those themes, of course it makes sense that somebody along the way in that experience is gonna 
feel defensive, rejected, isolated, silenced, misunderstood, misattuned to. And if there isn't a way for some reconciliation in that family unit, it's the divide is just going to grow bigger and there's going to be more resentment and more pain. And so when we, what you were saying is so key is that doing our own work is so important. Oftentimes, whether it's religious or not, couples before they get married will do premarital counseling. It's a thing that an expectation that a lot of couples will do just to make sure that this person that they're committing to has the same deep rooted values. And one of the reasons why it's so important for when we license for foster homes, when we are inviting children into our families through the process of adoption, why workers ask such intimate, detailed questions is, or they should be, is because how do we feel about things like discipline? How do we feel about words of affirmation? How do we feel about relationships? These are things that are worthy of exploration because when a child who comes in with this thick layer of trauma already exposed in their life, the goal is that their caregivers are going to be as attuned and regulated as possible so that however this child needs to explore and process and integrate their identity into their own systems as they grow and develop, the goal is that these caregivers, regardless of what is thrown at them to the best of their ability, and I get it, we're humans, nothing's perfect, but to their best of their ability are able to stay regulated and remember that trauma is not personal and that if this child is acting out, it's not a reflection of them rejecting them as parents. It's their systems feeling so triggered by connection or whatever else it might be that they're having a hard time accessing a felt sense of safety. So these, so it's so important for parents, I think, to remember and to understand that this isn't a personal attack. This isn't, you know, trying, there's a very real need to understand this personal information. And part of that is understanding the different dynamic, complex parts that live inside of you. Totally. Yeah. I think that that's like the perfect wrap up of that, uh, you know, talking about it in like the family, adoptive family unit is the goal of parents doing their own work is so they don't have to take their kids' trauma personally because it's just not your kid has to work out their own stuff and the way that their own little system needs to. And it doesn't really have anything to do with you. And if you haven't done your own work to help your system to heal and to feel more balanced, it's continually going to be a point of contention and this like power struggle, this battle that only makes living in a family system and growing up in that system more challenging, more difficult. So yeah, doing your own work is super key. But leading into, Amy, I'm curious about your thoughts about, we talk about healing the system on those like smaller levels, but what about healing just the system when we think about adoption in general as a system? Because when I think of that, it's just, I have a laundry list of stuff that needs to be changed and healed because this system is really, it's really messy. But what about you? Yeah. I mean, 
honestly, nobody has the amount of time in the world to hear. I could never, it just, my laundry list like you is so long and I'm passionate yeah. about every single aspect. One of the things, I mean, ugh, I could just go on about everything forever, but just from some personal experience about, um, before I was in private practice for many, many, many years, I've worked in the child welfare system. And one of the most eye-opening experiences that I had was when I was living in Wisconsin, I was a treatment foster parent trainer and also a treatment foster therapist. And so I worked in the homes with, um, with a foster youth and then I was their therapist and I also did training for incoming foster parents. My agency was a private agency, but we were housed in the county next to the workers. So I worked directly with licensing and all of the workers that were the caseworkers that were going in and out of these homes. And we were having big conversations every day about permanency for these children and reunification and all these things. What was really disheartening to me was, and I don't mean any offense to this, but what was really disheartening to me is anybody who was showing an interest at becoming a foster parent with intention to adopt was getting licensed. Yeah. And there were very real and honest conversations that I would go in and say, this person is not equipped or adapted. And I would get looked at and I would get, um, you know, talked to about, you know, we were so desperate for foster homes. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I'll edit that out. <coughs> but what, well, the reason why I had such a hard time with it was because there were, these were parents that were so terrified and phobic of doing their own work that mm -hmm. they, I just knew that it was going to be doing a disservice to these children and that these placements would get blown out. There were parents that were uncomfortable with youth being um, identified as LGBTQ plus community. There were parents who had very clear racial delineation of what they did or didn't feel comfortable with. And even though legally foster parents are not allowed to discriminate against any of those said topics, a foster parent can always deny someone to come in their home. So there's ways around it and children aren't necessarily safe. And so when we train our workers, our clinicians, it's really infuriating to be somebody personally connected to this adoption experience that works in a system that has such little attunement and understanding of what a real and true adoption adoption experience is like relinquishment. And it kind of boggles my mind at how little education is really done on attachment, connection, co-regulation, attunement in our field as social workers, because this is like the heart and crux in my opinion of what everything builds off of. So there's stuff like that all the way to how are we forming and being intentional about growing families through the process of adoption with also honoring bio family and why even the term foster to adopt is problematic because it's not honoring the initial need for reunification, which should always be the number one goal. 
But then we also talk about like big systemic things like, you know, I think about my country and how during my era of adoption, there were so many children that were stolen. They're called the children of silence. And right now in the news, there's like a lot of stuff being talked about them because there's been some reunifications happening. But during the era of my country in Chile, a lot of children were stolen in the middle of the night from their homes. And so there's obviously a systemic problem there as well of other nations running really corrupt schemes and um, disheartening plots to break families apart. There's a giant, massive spectrum of corruption and disillusionment and pain and trauma that is adoption. This spectrum is very wide and it is very broad. And within there, I think, comes a lot of need to really open our ears and listen to what people are experiencing without going in with the assumption that we know how to heal and cure other um, communities without really listening and attuning to what people are asking for and needing in their own healing process. Totally. Yeah, I think, I mean... Oh, it's like a deep breath. Cause again, this is, this is the chunk that I think just does feel so daunting to me because mm -hmm. this system has been present and active for so many years at this point. And in my opinion, it's gotten away with some things that are just so unethical and just show no morals in my opinion. Um, and it's just really, it's really disheartening. It just feels so heavy that these things have just been allowed to continue and that they've been brushed under the rug or that people don't want to see it for what it is, which is a system, like you said, of so much corruption, of so much coercion, of so much, like, it's just so, it feels so transactional, right? Which is so contradictory to when you're thinking about like this is a child like this is a, a little human and it just feels so transactional and something that should be like we've talked about all about attunement and connection and co-regulation and safety becomes this like almost feeling like meaningless like just you know thing and it just it's it's so sad to me um, it's also very infuriating and frustrating because I see people that are allowing it to continue. I see people that just turn the blind eye and it's like, oh, well, you know what? Like, you know, I, I got my kids. So like, we're just going to turn a blind eye to like all of these horror stories and things that we hear. Um, and it's just wrong. It's just wrong at the end of the day, um, you know, and kind of going off some of those big things that we have too. For me, when I think of the adoption system, it goes hand in hand with racism. In in my that's just I, I put those two things together. People that are black and brown are so overrepresented in foster care. Are the ones who, you know, especially if we think internationally, um, you know, the the brown babies are the ones that need to be adopted, and it's kind of poised in that way that we need saving and all of these kinds of things. And it's just, it's so intentionally done. I think that's what I think is so important for people to understand that just like the system of racism, the system of adoption was created so intentionally 
It was created to benefit certain people and to keep other people in really vulnerable states. And that is something that I think so much light needs to be shed on. Totally. We're going to get into a whole episode, probably multiple episodes about the history of adoption. But when we think about our system in the United States, I'm only highlighting that and focusing on that right now because that's where we both are currently living. But when we look at the United States and the history of adoption here, I mean, the history is thick. And what's disheartening to me is not much has really changed from how things have been or ideologies behind some of the policies that we've implemented. Some some shifts have happened, but they haven't been perfect by any means. And it's not enough, right? Like at the end of the day, like it's it's not nearly enough. No, but one thing that I think about even is just like the language that we use. I mean, this is like a bigger systemic thing um and how we use it and but one thing i just learned the other day which i actually didn't know but i just learned this is back in the day like early 1900s like late 1800s there were things called the orphan trains which i knew about Mm. but Mm -hmm. just like a quick quick recap is um back in the day children often were viewed more as like a economical asset to a family rather than an emotional asset to a family And a lot of families that were in poverty would send their children, their older children, basically as an indentured servant to go work for another family. And they would put them on these trains and they would go and they would, this is what I didn't know, is that the language of putting up a child for adoption came from the orphan trains where they would literally take the kids out of the um, trains and put them on a platform for foster homes to select. They would literally put them up on these platforms for foster families to um, choose them, right? And so there's so much just within that, right? That we, that families weren't resourced enough to stay together based off of economic means that the only other way that they felt like they could survive was make a really difficult decision to send their child somewhere else. And then children literally having to stand up. I mean, imagine being on that platform as an older person, right? This, these would be like older children because the intention was to create money and a baby and an infant weren't really part of what was on an orphan train. So now you have explicit memory of that feeling of being able to, am I good enough? Am I worthy? Are they going to choose me? Am I going to have, you know, like being removed from everything that felt safe and comfortable for you and being taken to a completely new location where everything sounds and feels different and having to be afraid that you're not going to be chosen for safety to get your basic human needs met. But not to get too derailed off into that, but going back to just the language that we use, putting someone up for adoption, that's rooted in a very traumatic experience. Gotcha day, you know, celebrating a day a child joins the family. These are things that we so commonly use and incorporate into our daily conversation and narrative around adoption. And we might not realize the impact or where something's stemming from and that's problematic in itself. So when I when we say that this spectrum is so wide, I mean, there's a lot of things that are, I mean, there's that's what I was saying at the beginning of this episode, there's no way that one person can take on all of it, right? But if we can all find the parts that we're super passionate about, 
and stand in our like truth of why there needs to be reform together collectively we can make a huge difference yeah and i think that that is our goal i mean when we were talking about what we wanted the mission of this podcast to be is Amy and I are both individually super, super passionate about this together within our own Adoptees Dish podcast little family here. We are super passionate about getting the word out to all of you guys about these topics and about our truths, about our experiences, things like that. But also we do have the goal of empowering all of you listeners to help change these systems to within your own family work on doing some of your own personal healing as a parent doing some of your healing to help the system that is your family and ultimately hopefully this stuff can get to the top and there can be some heavy hitting stuff that will bring about change and reform so that this doesn't this exact system we're working with now doesn't go another 50 years, another 100 years, you know, additional generations, because it's really harmful. And I can say as somebody who has been impacted at each of those levels, individually, within my family system, within the whole big macro system, it is exhausting. And it is so tiring. And it is really disheartening that this stuff continues to go on. And my hope is that we can heal some really, really broken systems, uh, you know, together. Yeah. So before we hop off, I just want to say that I always identify myself as an advocate for healing. I think that it is all within our birthright that if you're a human being, you are worthy and deserving of connection that's meaningful and authentic and that makes you feel seen and affirmed in your whole essence. And so if it feels daunting, if it feels scary, if it feels overwhelming, just take it in micro doses and know that there are people out there who are cheering you on and there are people out there who are wanting and willing to hold space for you, whether it is in your family unit, again, same thing, if it feels overwhelming or whether it's something that you want to be a game changer and rewrite some policy. All of it is in our capacity. All we have to do is just believe in ourselves and believe in each other. And I really believe that we can move mountains when it comes to these conversations. And we appreciate, you know, if you guys have questions about this, because we dove into this concept of healing the system on a lot of different levels. If any of you want to share your experiences with the systems that you are a part of, if you want to learn or understand more about what you can do to help heal systems and just need kind of some jumping off points, please feel free to get in touch with us. You can always email us as at adopteesdish at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on Instagram, which is at adopteesdish podcast. Um, so yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Adoptees Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Patreon, Spotify, iTunes, and Anchor. If you like what you heard and want to support our work or allow us to have amazing guests on the show, please consider making a donation. We can be reached on Instagram at Adoptees Dish Podcast, at Grow Heal Blossom, and Marcella Maslow. 
and you can send us emails at adoptiesdish at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and join us next week for our next episode. Please share this podcast. Talk to others about things you learned. Together, we have the potential to heal broken systems. Thank you.